Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Part 3 of our JFK episode is here, featuring our complete interview with Stephen Fagan, the curator of the excellent Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, a phenomenal repository of JFK, Oswald, and assassination information that we strongly recommend you all visit. And then we get the first part of our meticulous deconstruction of the trial scene of the Oliver Stone film, JFK. Production on the new shows proceeds apace, and we hope that reliving these older episodes is a good way to tide you over while you wait. Talk to you soon. During the now legendary, in his mind, Paranoid Strain Road Trip of 2017, we were overjoyed to be able to visit the excellent museum that now occupies the 6th and 7th floors of the infamous Book Depository building in Dallas. We were able to enjoy its meticulous reconstruction of evidence and theories about the case. And best of all, we were able to interview the friendly and knowledgeable Stephen Fagan. He provided invaluable insights about the assassination, its effect on the city, and the various controversies that have surrounded it ever since. My name is Stephen Fagan. I'm the curator at the Sixth Form Museum at Dealey Plaza. Well, almost immediately after the assassination, there was this community need to uh, mark the site as, as, a, as a point of commemoration. Uh, it was a very painful reminder for the city of Dallas, but it was lost on no one that this became the most visited site in the city within 24 hours of the assassination. Sure. And, and that interest continued to grow year after year until by the early 1970s, it was estimated that about a million people a year came to Dealey Plaza. Uh, Dallas County, fearing that the building was going to be torn down around 1977, decided to purchase it as part of a bond package. And uh, because it was going to be a useful part of the community, uh, as the seat of Dallas County government, the voters were okay with the county buying the old Texas School Book Depository. And so the county took ownership of the building in early 1978. But no county official wanted to office in the sniper's nest on the sixth floor. Uh, they also recognized this need to provide a place of uh, context and history up on the sixth floor where, where all of this happened. And so thus began about a 12-year, very controversial effort started by this grassroots network of community leaders to create an exhibition, uh, which ultimately became a museum on the sixth floor of the depository. And so that, that effort began about 1979. And the the sixth floor opened in February of 1989. Dealey Plaza is the second most visited historic site in the state of Texas behind the Alamo. 
and uh, folks come to the museum uh, to learn about the assassination, but also to put sort of the, the assassination within the context of the history and culture of the 1960s. My first visit to the Sixth Floor Museum was in February of 1989. I came opening week uh, with my parents and grandparents. I sort of grew up immersed with a very personal connection I felt to the story. I started here in uh, 2000. I'm the curator at the museum, uh, but it's been a big part of my life for the last 17 years. Sure. Dallas had been considered this hotbed of radical conservatism long before the Kennedy assassination. It was the southwestern headquarters of the John Birch Society. They operated a bookstore here. It was the home of Major General Edwin Walker, who was sort of a darling of the far right-wing community. Dallas had this growing reputation, and a series of incidents really starting in 1960 paved the way for what ultimately became this city of hate stigma that the city was burdened with. The first of these uh, happened four days before the 1960 presidential election. Lyndon Johnson, who of course was running uh, as vice president with John F. Kennedy, was the Senate majority leader at the time. He spoke over at the uh, Adolphus Hotel in Dallas and was heckled. He and his wife Lady Bird were heckled by over a hundred demonstrators trying to cross Commerce Street. And we're talking just a short drive away from Dealey Plaza. And this gained a great deal of national attention because Lady Bird uh, was spit on, her gloves were thrown in the gutter. Uh, Johnson made a big deal about this, about how unfairly he was treated, about how terribly his wife was treated, and look at this uh, ultra-conservative rabble that is just ruining the uh, reputation of the city of Dallas. And there was a great deal of anti-Dallas sentiment after the 1960 election on both sides because Republicans thought that these extremists in Dallas had spoiled the election for Nixon. And then you had the Democrats saying, well, these guys, this is the, this is the nutty right-wing extremist element in the South that we are talking about. It's characterized right here. It's embodied in the city of Dallas. And then finally, just a month before the assassination, the United Nations Ambassador Adlai Stevenson was here to speak at Memorial Auditorium. When he left the auditorium, uh, he noticed this big crowd across the street just yelling things at him. And Stevenson was a, was a nice guy, and he decided to go over to try to talk to the crowd, engage with the crowd. Just as he got over there, uh, this woman hit him on the head with one of these signs. And this was captured on film, and a photograph was taken. A student next to the woman spit on him. And the picture was published in Time Magazine. Uh, the uh, CBS uh, Evening News ran a story on it. And so leading up to the Kennedy visit, this is, this is late October of 63, uh, we have a dignitary uh, sort of abused and heckled visiting Dallas. Stevenson allegedly told Kennedy personally that Dallas was not a safe environment for him to go to. Uh, but, but Kennedy wasn't going to be deterred from this Texas trip, this unofficial kickoff to the 1964 re-election campaign. Campaign. When it was Dallas, it didn't really surprise very many people. Oh, Dallas, that's where things like this happen. This, the general consensus was it's one of General Walker's men. It's one of the far right-wing birchers. Within 90 minutes, Oswald arrested, and as you know, the evening progresses, and more and more is found out about Oswald's background. You know, this left-leaning self-described Marxist-Leninist. You have a very different portrait, a political ideology vastly different from what most people assumed was the general mentality of Dallasites. And it took arguably decades for Dallas to recover from this very painful stigma. And so when you think about that, 
and think about this building in the context of that. What do you do with this site? Because this building was a manifestation of evil for so many around the world. And for Dallasites, it was this painful daily reminder uh, of, of what happened. Plans were announced around 83 uh, for what this museum would ultimately become. One of our Dallas City Council members uh, who voted in favor of demolition of this building actually said at a council meeting that this building could never be a memorial to John F. Kennedy because Kennedy never set foot here. He didn't even know the Texas School Book Depository existed and therefore it would only be a glorification of Lee Harvey Oswald. Fortunately, um, logic prevailed and, and they recognized, particularly one man, uh, the, the public works director for Dallas County who officed right across the street, seeing the tourist interest, he recognized that tearing this building down would be in many ways fulfilling the prophecy that so many had about Dallas, this idea that Dallas does have something to hide and tearing down the school book depository would be proof of that. The Texas School Book Depository Company uh, was, just as the name implies, it was a distribution hub for school textbooks. The first four floors of the building were uh, depository company offices, but also offices for regional offices for most of the textbook publishers like Macmillan, McGraw-Hill, Scott Forsman, and floors five, six, and seven were open storage for school textbooks. And so employees like Lee Harvey Oswald, who was an order filler, uh, would basically have his clipboard, get a, cer you know, a certain number of boxes of math and science and English books from the Scott Forsman section on the sixth floor and were needed to be you know, put on this dolly, taken down the freight elevator, packed up to go out to schools in North Texas. That was Oswald's job, and he had worked here for several weeks uh, prior to the assassination. One of the first things people ask me when I mention Oswald's employment here, they're, well, did he get the job after the presidential parade route was planned through Dallas? And as wonderfully simple as that would be, the answer is no. Oswald got the job here before any motorcade had been determined for President Kennedy. It was through Ruth Payne that he found out about the job opening here at the Texas School Book Depository because a neighbor uh, to the Paynes out in Irving, uh, Lenny Mae Randall, her brother Wesley Frazier, Buell Wesley Frazier, was an order filler here at the depository. Ruth learned about an opening, and so she actually paved the way for Oswald to get the job here, which of course is implicated in so many theories, Ruth Payne as an accomplice or as some sort of a, a plant who, who manipulated Oswald to get him here into this building, even though there's no real proof of that. He lied. He said that he had never had any run-ins with the police, even though he had just gotten arrested that summer in New Orleans for fighting with the anti-Castro Cubans. He came into this building uh, that day, this young man, uh, 24 years old, in the midst of a disintegrating marriage, a confused political ideology. He had left his wedding ring in a little teacup next to Marina's nightstand. And uh, Oswald leaves the building. He's the only employee who's not accounted for when they do the roll call. Ultimately, he's arrested about 80 minutes later in the Texas theater after he does try to shoot a Dallas police officer in the face. A lot of people think about the assassination in terms of uh, Shakespearean proportions. It is this sort of Shakespearean tragedy. And if you want to believe in that, then Jack Ruby is Falstaff. He is by far the most colorful figure in the entire strange, episodic story of the Kennedy assassination. Ruby did have documented low-level ties to organized crime in his youth growing up in Chicago, like a number of young people who did simple things like run errands for Al Capone and things like that. As far as documenting any real tangible link to organized crime as an adult, it gets a lot trickier. But Ruby had established himself here in Dallas 
wannabe figure who loved law enforcement, who would often visit the newspaper offices, would often visit the police station, always passing out these cards offering police officers and detectives free drinks at his club. Ruby was this master showman, and so he was always trying to promote his club and sort of be where the action was. There are Jack Rubies in every town. He enjoyed giving people the impression that there was more to him, perhaps, that he was involved in organized crime, whether that was true or not. Most people that I've spoken to who knew Ruby, who worked with Ruby, didn't feel like he had the mental capacity or the trustworthiness to be in the mob. But you can take from that what you will. Ruby enters the story on Sunday morning when he jumps out on live television and murders Lee Harvey Oswald. It's the first murder broadcast live on American television. And who is this guy? You know, he's immediately arrested. He's identified as Jacob Rubenstein. And so this whole background on Ruby comes out and suddenly you have these ties to the Dallas Police Department. A lot of the cops knew him. How did he get into the basement? What was he doing there with reporters? Why did he have a gun? And it gets even more murkier because the gun that Ruby used to shoot Oswald was bought for him by a Dallas police officer. Joe Cody, who was a detective, uh, had bought that gun for Ruby because police officers could buy guns in Dallas without paying sales tax. So he bought the gun and sold it to Ruby at cost because he was a friend. And this happened years before, but there's a, there's a certain amount of irony there that the gun used to shoot Oswald was bought for Jack Ruby by a Dallas police officer. Ruby said he, he loved President Kennedy and, you know, he couldn't stand the smirk on Oswald's face. And the story is that he just wanted to spare Jacqueline Kennedy the pain of possibly having to come back to Dallas to testify in a trial against Oswald. But there's always going to be this sinister suspicion that he was acting on orders, that this was a mob hit and he was to silence Lee Harvey Oswald, even though there's no evidence of that whatsoever, nor is there any credible evidence that Ruby and Oswald knew each other, which was a major thing after the assassination. But what happened to Ruby after this was he was found guilty of, of murder with malice, uh, March 14, 1964, and the jury uh, gave him the death penalty. His attorney, uh, Melvin Belli, this very flamboyant attorney from San Francisco, had uh, come into town railing against Dallas, talking about how this was a hotbed of radical conservatism. He put forth this idea that Jack Ruby suffered from psychomotor epilepsy, this rare form of epilepsy in which Jack was in a fugue state and unaware of his actions when he shot Oswald. Belli railed against Dallas in the aftermath. He said this was the biggest kangaroo, kangaroo railroading court disgrace in the history of American law, something like that. And uh, they immediately appealed the verdict, and it was overturned remarkably. A lot of people don't know this, but Jack Ruby died an innocent man because the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin overturned that guilty verdict. They concluded that Ruby did not receive a fair trial in Dallas. Mis various mistakes were made during the trial, and they had to move the trial outside of Dallas. So, so Ruby was going to have a new trial that was going to take place in Wichita Falls in 1967, Wichita Falls, Texas. It's remarkable that Jack Ruby spent the remaining years of his existence in a building adjacent to Dealey Plaza, but he was up on the sixth floor of the Dallas County Criminal Courts building. He had a cell up there. Deputy sheriffs uh, babysat him 24 hours a day to make sure he didn't hurt himself because he did apparently try to commit suicide a few times while in jail. Mentally, he deteriorated over the years. He started making these strange and bizarre allegations. When he would hear the trains going through Dealey Plaza, he would tell his jailers and his attorney that, that those were all filled with Jews going to the concentration camps. And he would talk about hearing noises in the building, and it was Jews being exterminated in the building. And, and he, he seemed to have this 
persecution complex that because of his act that Jews were being persecuted because Ruby was very proudly Jewish. He said after one of his court dates during the appeal process, the world will never know the true facts, my motivations. And then he suggested that these men of great power had so much to gain from the death of President Kennedy. Well, researchers, book authors, conspiracy theorists have seized upon all these Jack Ruby quotes. You see them replicated time and time again. They show up in the Oliver Stone movie, but they don't put into context Ruby's mental state at the time he was making these allegations. Do you think of Jack Ruby as this sort of uh, suave guy that you see in the aftermath of the Oswald shooting, sitting there for his initial trial in 1964, seeming very rational and reasonable a couple years later when he starts making these things? And, and Jack Ruby's a very different man, and you only have to look to his attorneys to, to hear them talk about how he was mentally incapacitated by this time. Ruby got very sick in uh, December of 66. He came down with pneumonia, taken to Parkland Hospital, where Kennedy and Oswald had both died, and he never left. He died January 3rd, 1967. The doctors discovered he had lung cancer, which was very advanced. Ultimately, Ruby died of a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot that started in his leg and traveled to his heart, uh, but it was brought on by his cancer. Ruby had made a comment to one of his jailers that he was being injected with cancer cells, and that's become a conspiracy theory that Ruby was killed because he knew too much, because he started making these comments in 65 and 66 that the world will never know, and there's men that have so much to gain, and suddenly Ruby ups and dies of cancer. Well, Ruby himself said he was injected with cancer cells. Uh, this has gone on and on and on around in the various uh, you know books and documentaries, but there's no medical way to contract cancer via injection, but it's a great theory, and for Ruby to have said that uh, is, is assuming you believe sure. the deputy sheriff. There's no recording of Ruby saying this, but it just, that is Jack Ruby. He, he's at the center of this story, yet he's sort of removed from it because he very well could have just been this guy caught up in the emotion of the moment or looking to make a name for himself, thinking he would, you know, get off with a slap on the wrist and then have this notoriety that he could you know, pedal about for the rest of his life. Uh, or he could have been this sinister mafia figure who, who did this contracted hit against Oswald. So, you know, there's no evidence of that, but that's a, for so many people, that's a far more satisfying explanation as to who Jack Ruby was. So we have this oral history project where we talk to all sorts of individuals, and a big part of our oral history project are talking to the people who were very personally impacted by the assassination, including authors and researchers and documentarians. And I have found talking to many of these people that their interest in the assassination, what fuels them, is this personal sense of loss. Not necessarily the loss of President Kennedy, but the loss of something within themselves. That, that, that goes all the way back to William Manchester in Death of a President in 1967, the idea that the scales don't balance. You put John F. Kennedy on one end and Lee Harvey Oswald on another, they don't balance out. But Oswald may have affected this monumental change in the history of uh, 20th century American history, in world history. And when you look at a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald, that is unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. It is so much nicer to believe that he was killed by these dark forces at work within the government. That he would that that you know that, yeah. that that he you know he was conspired against. It goes back to the Shakespearean uh, idea that that this his death has to mean something more than just a guy who really 
had this very confused political ideology and maybe was just upset because the night before the assassination, he had asked his wife multiple times to move back in with him and she refused. And so the next morning he goes to work angry, leaves his wedding ring behind and takes a package wrapped in brown paper. For a lot of people, it's as simple as that. But within that simplicity is something deeply disturbing. And so that's that's where we are. The mafia and the CIA. Back into the left. Back into the left. Well, it was all caught on film. Frame 313 shows the shot to kill. Thanks again to Mr. Fagan for his fascinating, fact-based observations. Now we dive into fantasy, what the conspiracists allege are the holes in the Warren Commission version of events. We've decided to center our refutation efforts around the movie JFK for a number of reasons. First, it's the piece of JFK conspiracy literature that has impacted the largest number of people, by far. Second, because Stone designed it this way, it's essentially a distillation of the first two and a half decades of conspiracy theorizing. Third. It means we get to argue with Kevin Costner. For the three of you who have gotten this far in the show and don't already know this, the movie JFK tells the story of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who in 1969 brought the only prosecution ever associated with the Kennedy assassination, attempting to tie a local businessman named Clay Shaw to a conspiracy through extremely tenuous evidence. That synopsis is the nicest way we're ever planning to refer to Garrison or his witch hunt again. It's got a stellar supporting cast, excepting the woodenly wholesome Costner who plays Jim Garrison. And while we'll touch on other claims the movie discusses later in the show, there is one sequence that packs almost all of the film's conspiracy claims into one relatively tight monologue. The scene where Costner's Garrison, combining the historical trial transcript with an array of other sources, makes his closing argument to the jury. We're leaning particularly hard on the Bugliosi book here because it's so unbelievably detailed, addressing and refuting not only everything in this speech, but hundreds of other conspiracist ideas. And because it proved so useful in our second 9-11 show, we're also bringing back the lightning round. This time, we're limiting ourselves to one minute to respond to each fallacious claim made by our fictionalized DA. That's difficult because, as we've discovered long ago, it's much easier to express a simple untruth than it is to prove that untruth is untrue. Get ready. A whole mess of bullshit is coming at you in three, two, one. The Warren Commission thought they had an open and shut case. Three bullets, one assassin. But two unpredictable things happened that day that made it virtually impossible. One... The 8mm home movie taken by Abraham Zapruder while standing near the grassy knoll. And two, the third wounded man, James Tay, who was nicked by a fragment while standing near the triple underpass. The time frame, 5.6 seconds, established by the Zapruder film, left no possibility of a full shot. Sounds like a pretty definitive time frame, right? but actually he's only naming the lowest possible time in which Oswald might have fired based on the Zapruder film. In reality, because it's so grainy and lacks a soundtrack, and for a number of other reasons, the accepted time in which the bullets were fired is a range from 5.6 to 8.3 seconds. This is a pretty shitty thing to shade the truth on when you're leading off, right? 
And while we're on this topic, they love to insist that Oswald was not a good enough marksman to get off the shots, and furthermore that no one has been able to match his feat of marksmanship, except, well, Prosecutor Bugliosi? How would anyone who didn't have Volume 3 of the Warren Commission's 26 supporting volumes know that this is a false assertion? On page 446 of Volume 3, we learn that way back in 1964, one specialist Miller of the United States Army, using Oswald's own Manlicker Carcano rifle, not only duplicated what Oswald did, but improved on Oswald's time. He was the first of many to match or exceed Oswald. Oh, and according to the Marine Corps records, in 1956, Oswald scored a 212 with his M1, making him officially a sharpshooter. Okay, back to the lightning. So the shot of fragment that left a superficial wound on Take's cheek had to come from one of the three bullets fired from the sixth floor of the depository. Yes, Mr. Tegg's wound was probably caused by a bullet fired by Oswald, but it's very likely that it was a fragment of the first of the three bullets, which missed both Kennedy and the car. Many likely trajectories have the bullet ricocheting off of pavement or the dense wood of one of the oak trees outside the depository window, and then hitting the curb, finally nicking Tegg's cheek. Regardless, no fourth bullet. That leaves just two bullets. And we know one of them was the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy. So now a single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. Yep, and it does. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. We're going to give Stone and Garrison the benefit of the doubt here, but there's no question that Spectre's Jewish heritage has been a major component of the decades of conspiracist ire that has been aimed at his single-bullet theory. We're not saying. We're just saying. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck. Wound number two where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit, wound number three. The bullet then heads downward at an angle of 27 degrees, shattering Conley's fifth rib and exiting from the right side of his chest, wound number four. The bullet then turns right, and re-enters Conley's body at his right wrist. Wound number five. Shattering the radius bone, the bullet then exits Conley's wrist. Wound number six. Makes a dramatic U-turn and buries itself into Conley's left thigh. Wound number seven. Nearly every word of the preceding is either a lie, a lie of omission, or vacuous. Let's break it down. As Bugliosi points out several times, given that there is not and never has been any evidence of a second shooter, much less a team, as Costner Garrison will shortly allege, the conspiracists have completely failed to meet their burden of proof in demonstrating that there were more than three shots fired, so even defending this is largely academic. But let's do it anyway. The main thing those who poo-poo the magic bullet explanation get wrong, whether inadvertently or deliberately, is the arrangement of President Kennedy and Governor Connolly in the car during the shooting. Yes, Connolly was sitting in front of the president, but not in the way that you would think of with a conventional car's front seat-rear seat arrangement. 
Instead, Connolly was seated in what's known as a jump seat, which, as Bugliosi notes, was situated a half foot inside and to the left of the right door, but also three inches lower than the back seat. This means the governor was seated below and to the left of the president. In addition, at the moment Kennedy is shot the first time, by the second bullet fired by Oswald, which is obvious in the Zapruder film because of the neuromuscular reflex reaction that sends the president's hands flying up to his throat and his elbows outward at 90-degree angles. Connolly is turned to the right. Well, guess what happens to the mysterious perambulations of the bullet when you take the position and body angle into account? A nearly straight line, totally consistent with the expected trajectory for a bullet fired from behind and above the victims. And that stuff about the zigzagging to hit the wrist? Nonsense. It's like Stone and Company have never heard of bullets ricocheting. And it's found in almost pristine condition on a stretch in a corridor of Parkland Hospital. As for this jawing about a pristine bullet and how it couldn't possibly have caused all that damage and yet remain in its final seemingly unmarred condition, a couple of points. The Army wound ballistics experts at Edward Arsenal filed some comparison bullets. Not one of them looked anything like this. Take a look at CE 856, an identical bullet fired through the wrist of a human cadaver. Just one of the bones smashed by the magic bullet. Seven wounds, gentlemen. Tough skin, dense bones. The problem here, as Bugliosi points out, is that firing a bullet point-blank into a cadaver's wrist is almost completely different than having that same bullet strike a glancing blow on live bone tissue after it's lost more than half of its original velocity. In reality, this bullet would have been slowed from 2,000 feet per second, the same speed the cadaver wrist bullet was traveling when it impacted and deformed, to a range somewhere between 1,100 and 1,300 feet per second after passing through the bodies of both the president and the governor, still fast enough to break his wrist bone ricochet off and hit his thigh at around 700 feet per second. All of the above is quoted in Reclaiming History from the testimony of Larry Sturdivan, a ballistics expert to the HSCA. And we should mention that this supposedly pristine bullet only appears unblemished from photos on a horizontal angle that's usually used by conspiracists. Buliosi shows a view of the rear of the bullet where it's clearly deformed. Yet the government says it can prove it with some fancy physics in a nuclear laboratory. Of course they can. Theoretical physics can prove that an elephant can hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. <laughs> but use your eyes, your common sense. It's sadly unsurprising that the film should take this meat-headed, meaningless jab at science. But its purpose is to hand-wave away the unimpeachable fact that the bullets found in Kennedy and Connolly's bodies were proven by neuron activation analysis to have come from the particular brand of ammo that Oswald used. But even more interestingly, because that brand, Western cartridge ammo, had unique chemical characteristics, it was possible to prove that all of the fragments found in the car came from two and only two bullets. But you were saying, Mr. Garrison... This single bullet explanation is the foundation of the Warren Commission's claim of a lone assassin. And once you conclude the magic bullet could not create all seven of those wounds, you have to conclude that there was a fourth shot and a second rifleman. And if there was a second rifleman, then by definition, there had to be a conspiracy. So by your rationale, we've proved that since there were only three shots, we definitely don't have to conclude there was a conspiracy, right? 
51 witnesses, gentlemen of the jury, thought they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll, which is to the right in front of the president. Yeah, let's talk about those witnesses. It's certainly true that a significant percentage of people present that day heard shots coming from somewhere other than the book depository. Though it's also true that around half of those crewed consistently identified the book depository as the source of the shots. However, while we want to take this testimony seriously, it's also true that in follow-up test firings at Dealey Plaza, it was hard for test subjects, who knew the shots would be coming, to identify where they had come from, due to 20-plus structures that can produce echoes within the area. So people hearing shots from that direction is hardly conclusive, but it does call attention to the film's failure to mention that three quarters or so of those witnesses heard exactly three shots, while fewer than 10% heard four or more. The number of shots being far easier for witnesses to identify accurately than the direction of the shooting. This fact, by the movie's own logic, indicates we can dismiss the idea of a conspiracy. Unfortunately, Costner doesn't suddenly have the scales fall from his eyes mid-monologue. On the other hand, we will definitely acknowledge the next Stone Garrison Costner point, which is some straight up mine Igor Bride of Frankenstein shit. And when we finally get a court order to examine President Kennedy's brain in the National Archives, in the hopes of finding from which direction the bullet came from, we're told by the government, your government, that the president's brain has disappeared. This is in fact, true. Sometime between 1965 and 1966, the president's brain was absconded with by persons who have never officially been identified, though we're pretty sure we know who did it and why. Most observers believe that RFK removed the brain and had it reinterred with the rest of his brother's body when it was moved to Arlington National Cemetery. As to his reasons, it's not because the brain held irrefutable proof of other shots from non-Oswald directions, there are enough autopsy photos and x-rays made before its disappearance, not to mention examinations by three pathologists, to ensure that the damage to the organ is what would have been expected from Oswald's third shot from the rear. Rather, it's because Bobby knew there was a likely and morbid possibility that the Smithsonian or other government institution might someday put the brain on public display, and he decided to spare his family that indignity. Right or wrong, it's definitely an understandable move from the late senator. And here's where it jumps from ignorant contrarianism straight into complete conjecture. So what really happened that day? Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? Wait, that other shit wasn't speculation? Oh, it was, but it pales in comparison to what comes next. Buckle up, it's about to go into bullshit overdrive.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.